so good to see you. And um, for those who are joining us online, we welcome you. Uh, we're recording this in North Lakes on a Saturday night. Uh, but the wonderful thing about the Word of God is that whenever it is you engage with it, it's relevant and it, it speaks to the heart and, and God has a way of ministering to us through his word. We get the opportunity to continue our series, Come Together. We kicked off last weekend and that was a wonderful start and we continue on uh, this weekend looking at the model of the early church in Acts chapter 2 and we see a description of how they went about life together in godly community. They were loving, they were sharing, they were helping, they were sacrificing for each other. And then we found there in Acts 2.42 this apex of community, of what it looks like. And we said, though, it's simplistic for us today to think we can just go back to that. If we just do what they do, if we just replicate their behaviour, we'll get the same outcomes. No, no, no. The world has changed. We no longer live and operate under a communal mindset where we're doing life together. The internet, for one thing, has just changed the way we live and relate to one another. And so we can't just go backwards. We never actually can go backwards in life. There's no such thing really as the good old days. God wants us to make today the best day ever. And so we can't go back and yet we learn from their example. We are inspired by their example. And we finished uh, last weekend with this challenge of saying, while we feel so time poor in terms of us relating to one another in community, what's even sadder than a limited amount of time is the fact that when we get those 10 minutes of connection opportunity, whether that's before or after church services, for example. So often we even waste that. We end up talking about the weather or we end up talking about the restaurant we went to this week. Or we end up talking about whether our sporting team won or lost. And we waste the precious little moments we have connecting together. And we find ourselves always in the shallow end of the pool rather than the deep end of the pool, really talking about the stuff of the heart. Can I just congratulate you, though, because I know this past week many of you took on that challenge and many of you shared deeply about what's going on in your heart. I'm aware of many, many conversations where tears were shared together as we opened up our hearts to one another. So I just congratulate you for that courage and I want to thank you for the response to God's word where you've begun to take that seriously. I know many of you flung open your heart's door wider than you have before. So well done on that. We want to continue to be inspired by this early church, their devotion to prayer, to teaching, to fellowship and the breaking of bread. So here's some practical things we're doing here at Access between now and Easter. And this is getting really down to the nitty gritties here. Super basic, but here goes. We're sharing communion every single service between now and Easter in, a, in an attempt to put a greater devotion on sharing communion together and remembering Jesus in all of our gatherings. We are um, sharing uh, fellowship together. We've built this outdoor pavilion area at this side where you can go and mingle after church, spend time together and share in fellowship. All of our home groups will be looking at the same material for this term. They'll be together in alignment there. We're increasing our devotion to all these things, including prayer. Now, hopefully on your way in, you found these prayer cards were available on the desk there. If you missed them today, you can grab one later or they'll be available again next week. So we're introducing prayer.
prayer week this year at Axis. And next Sunday, we're starting at 6 a.m. I'm glad I got a couple of cheers. I was joking. We're starting at 8 a.m. But on Monday, we're starting at 6 a.m. So we're giving you a 24-hour period to kind of warm up to it. And then on Monday, it will be a 6 a.m. session. So we've deliberately put the sessions at different times to fit people's work schedules, etc. But please, if you can, come along next Sunday early for the kickoff of prayer week. And I just encourage you to engage with prayer in a deeper way. We're going to have prayer available after every service where you can bring your needs to the Lord and have people pray with you about it. We want to increase our devotion to prayer. And in saying that, I want to sit on that topic for this weekend and talk about prayer. Now, immediately some of you are going to have this internal nausea when I begin saying, I want to talk about prayer. Because prayer for you in church circles has been a, a source of guilt. It's like this repetitive message, pray more, pray harder, pray longer. And it's just like this broken record on repeat that perhaps some of you have heard for much of your life. Pray more, pray harder, pray longer. You get the drift. It, it kind of leads us to one place, a place of guilt, where it feels like you're never doing enough. Whatever you're doing in the arena of prayer, God isn't happy with it. He wants more. Has anyone else got that kind of feeling when churches talk about prayer? And it was always puzzling to me. It was kind of like, how long is a piece of string? Like, how long is enough when it comes to prayer? Because our church would pray more than we did last year, and yet the message would still be the same. We need to pray more. It's kind of like, this seems to be a never-ending story. And I consider the model given by Jesus as it relates to prayer, what we call now the Lord's Prayer. And if you recite yourself saying that, you'll find it lasts about 20 seconds. So where did we get this idea that long prayers are spiritual? And why has length of time become so prominent for us in relation to discussions about prayer? Now, undoubtedly, Jesus values prayer. He said he wants his house to be called a house of prayer. So we need prayer. It's just a question of why has it become all about how long we pray for? And when you ask the question, so how long should an individual or should a church spend in prayer, those spiritual people pull back because they realise it's an unanswerable question. Here's a stunning thing I've discovered as I've actually read the Bible. Not so much paid attention to church tradition, but read the Bible. If the Bible has anything to say about prayer, it's make them shorter, would you please? Here's a direct quote from the Bible. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. That's foreign to how I grew up. In the circle I grew up with, prayer felt like it was a competition. It was who could speak the best Christianese. It went something like this. Our gracious and eternal heavenly Father, we beseech thee, we beseech thee, show thyself faithful to thy servant with us whoever thou goest. These folks had this Christianese jargon sorted out and whoever could do that best publicly and make it last the longest, they were at the top of the tree. They were at the top of the tree. If you could kind of make your prayer last over five minutes, you are definitely spiritual. God was pleased with you. But this isn't in the Bible. And we made this stunning observation in our return series a couple of months ago. God doesn't rate our prayer lives by how long we prayed for. 
rather how long we stop for. Because God says he wants prayer to be an unbroken conversation, actually. This is the Bible's instruction is pray without stopping. Never stop the conversation with God. So here's what this means. If you have heard people brag about they spent an hour this morning in prayer with God, you know what? Well, they were not pleasing to God. If what they meant was we locked God out of the other 23, then that's actually a problem. If you hear a person even proudly saying, I spent four hours this morning in prayer to God. From 4 a.m. to 8 a.m., I was on my knees praying to God. Well, guess what? Still not pleasing to God because God is interested in a conversation that never stops. This shows us how little we understand about prayer. It really ought to be more like a spiritual activity where we just like breath, like it's like our breath. It's like we didn't even realise we were doing it until we stopped and had a conscious awareness. <sighs> I just took a breath. That's kind of how prayer is supposed to be. I'm not supposed to let a moment pass where I'm unconscious of Jesus. At the heart of prayer is an opportunity, not an obligation. And that's what I want you to go away with from this message. Prayer is an opportunity not an obligation. We need to have a mind shift from talking to God to being with God. And as we look into Hebrews 4 today, please note it doesn't say speak, talk, articulate. Make sure you sound amazing when you put your words together to God because your terminology needs to be picked really carefully because the more letters you can get in there that are more than 12 letters, more words that are 12 letters or above, you really penetrate heaven once you start using those big terms. No, 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 it's far simpler yet more profound than that. The word here is come, come. See, prayer is not just spiritual activity that we turn on and off, it's life. And prayer is the realisation that I invite God into all spaces of life. It's less about obligation, more about opportunity. Let's read Hebrews 4 together. And I encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews 4.14. If you've got an electronic device, go to the YouVersion app and you'll find all the notes to the message in there. Now, we can't possibly read Hebrews without considering the Old Testament connotations of Hebrews. You might guess from the name, the first readers are Jews. They're Jewish people. Now, some have said the first author was a barista. He brews. No, I didn't think it was funny either. <laughs> Throughout recorded history, no one thought about God's availability of being able to just talk to him. People never approached God uh, except through a qualified mediator. No one dreamed of going to God directly all by themselves. Approaching God was for the professionals. Yet with the arrival of Jesus, everything shifts. The floodgates open. Let's read about that. Since we have a high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So now, because of this, Prayer is not a religious obligation, it's a relational opportunity. Let's see this scripture here in verse 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, 
they will receive his mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. For the first readers, Hebrews 4 wasn't a Bible lecture. It wasn't deep theology. For them, it was breaking news. It was head spinning. This was an event in the arrival of Jesus that would change history. The unapproachable God came within reach. And that was a bizarre thought for them. The unapproachable God came down within reach. Now, we read back on this scripture, but for them, hearing this for the first time was confusing. It was bizarre. They had a well-defined groove in how people related to God. And essentially, humans didn't. Humans didn't approach God or relate to God. They didn't just waltz up and have a chat to God. That was unthinkable. It was like that thought was kind of like trying to share a steak with a lion. It just wasn't going to end well. You were going to be hurt. That was not a safe activity. You needed to keep your distance. Anyone showing a lack of reverence for God would pay dearly for it. God's presence was otherworldly. It was way up there. It was beyond the reach of the average human. Only a priest would ever think to approach God, and then, even then, only on special occasions and only in specialised ways. This was never open slather. Never, ever. Ordinary folk didn't have a place before God. This was a once-a-year annual event, Yom Kippur, with millions of rules, protection around this, so that the one holy guy who dared to go into God's presence would actually survive the event. For thousands of recorded history, this was a standard operating procedure. One particular priest, one particular day, one particular standardised way of doing that. The opportunity was limited until on the first Christmas, Jesus steps down and changes everything. Emmanuel comes, God with us, and everything is flipped on its head and God's door is flung so wide open, it's, it's flung off its hinges completely. It will never be shut again. And some of you say, yeah, I get it, John, I move on. I get to talk to God any time. I, I get it. I understand. Don't labour the point, please. But do we really get it? Do we really comprehend the, the magnitude of the shift? If we got it, it would have a dramatic effect on our lives and we'd bear the fruit of this revelation, see? This revelation wouldn't be barren. It would have a massive effect on us. We would begin to realise prayer isn't dull. Prayer isn't boring. Prayer isn't mundane. Prayer isn't a time-driven thing where you look at your watch and go, like, I've got two minutes to go. That's not prayer. Scripture paints a a picture of, uh, of us coming into friendship with a loving God. Grasping this access would have us feeling, and these points are based on our reading, secure, understood, bold and graced. Now that was a mouthful, right? You would feel secure, understood, bold and graced. Let's unpack those one at a time. Secure. If you and I understood access to God, we'd enjoy a composure about our spirit. There'd be a steadiness about our daily lives. We would find ourselves, to use the words of verse 14, holding firmly to what we believed. I think I know one of your secrets because I have the same secret. It's actually a human condition. We are insecure. We struggle with this. All of us do. We have times we feel lost at sea 
And I know some of you think that us leaders glow in the dark. Sorry to disappoint you. I have days just like you where God does not seem a million miles away. That's not enough. He seems like two or three million miles away. And you sometimes need someone like me to say that publicly. Because just like you, I have days where I struggle to connect with this loving God. Now, why is that? Why is that my story? If it's possible to live secure, why don't I experience it all the time, like 24-7? Why do I have moments where I feel abandoned and forgotten by God? Well, at least in part, Hebrews 4 uncovers my issue. I've forgotten. I've forgotten I have access. I've forgotten that I have a father who's attentive to me. I've forgotten about his invite to come. I've forgotten about his interest in me. I've failed to remember I have somewhere to go with my pain and with my loneliness and with my frustration and with my doubts and my fears. I've internalised whatever's going on in my life and lost sight of the amazing God who says, come, my door's ajar. When I forget, my sense of well-being is shot. Hebrews 4, 14 gives three reasons I can hold with great confidence uh, my faith and this access to God. It's because I have a great high priest. I have someone who advocates for me and he has entered heaven. He's opened up spaces that were never accessible to me before. And our high priest is none other than Jesus, the son of God, who sits in the highest place of authority. This isn't the local police officer on your side. This isn't even a good lawyer. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And if we took these things to heart and grabbed a hold of them and took them seriously, our hearts wouldn't shake so hard, you know. Grasping this access would have us feeling secure, but also understood. Understood. I wonder of all the regular thoughts you have about God, as you imagine what the Heavenly Father is like, is one of your key insights into God is that he understands you. He understands. He gets us. He comprehends our situations. He fully understands. I can't say it's a lead thought that I often have in my life, and yet it says it here in Hebrews 4.15. God doesn't partially understand. He's not somewhat empathetic. You know, that's sometimes how we think of God. We show him our best side. We dress up and come to church. He, he might be impressed. We, we better cover up our flaws, though. We wouldn't want him to see our bad side. This is what it says here. The striking words are Jesus faced all of the same stuff I do and you do, and therefore he can sympathise with all that we go through. All means all, and that's all all means. There's nothing outside the human experience that is foreign to the mind of Jesus. Any dark thought you've had in the past week, and you've had some, hasn't knocked God off his throne if Hebrews 4.15 is true, it, God's pretty much unshockable. Everything we go through, is already, he's already been through. So when I feel compelled to do something dumb, the last person surprised by my wandering mind is God. He already knows. He already gets it. He understands. He understands. He understands. 
How is it possible for a God who's so perfect and holy and upright to be understanding of me? Well, the scripture says he remembers that I am dust. He doesn't overrate me. He remembers that I'm just dust. Let me break this down to a real life scenario. If I had bills arrive this week in my inbox, they don't arrive in the mailbox anymore, but in the inbox comes the electricity bill. Am I going to walk up to my seven-year-old at the dinner table that night and say, electricity bills come in, you're the one leaving all the lights on around here, pay up, pay up. What's your contribution going to be to this bill? How is my seven-year-old going to cope with that or the, the, the water bill? You know, you're the one that we always have to call out of the shower. You're the one always mucking around in there too long. You use the most water around here. So how about you contribute to this water bill? You know, my seven-year-old doesn't have an income. She won't be making any financial contribution to the household, at least not yet. You say, John, we don't understand my upbringing. My, my parents did expect way too much and they weren't age-appropriate expectations. Well, yes, sadly, many a human parent has unrealistic expectation and can be found driving their child along with crazy demands, trying to live out their own dreams through their child. And too much of that creates anxiety and leaves children feeling unsafe. That could be your experience of your earthly parents, but you know, your heavenly father, nothing like that. Nothing like that. He says, I understand, I comprehend. And if you and I spent time at his throne before him, we'd have this experience, this incredible, deep, profound experience of feeling understood. Grasping this access to God's throne would have us also feeling bold. See, the better understood we are, the more confident we're likely to feel in life. And we notice God's invite is to come to him with boldness. This is most striking to me in this passage, not just that we get to come to God, but the how, the process, that he's thrown his door open. Sure, that would have shocked these first readers, the Jewish folks who just weren't used to this idea at all. But what stuns me the most is not just that I'm invited to come, but how I'm invited to come with confidence, with assurance, with boldness. How is that possible? Because remember, it's a throne we're approaching, not just a chair. And the guy in this throne is, is God himself, and, and, and it's a throne. He's not on the hammock. He, he's on the throne. He's ruling. And throughout Scripture, we see even human kings had authority to, to behead people based on a bad mood. So where do we get this confidence? Where would we ever feel confidence to approach the King of kings and Lord of lords? Well, this boldness isn't based on our merit. It's not about how good of a human I am. It's about the perfect life of Jesus and that I'll put my trust in him. That seeds the boldness. I think it's also worth us noting the call here is to be bold, not to be arrogant. There is a difference. Confidence is in, cockiness is not in. I get to stand here because of grace and I never, ever, ever forget that. 
God isn't wanting me to stand there cowering. He's wanting me to stand there confident, knowing I belong because of Jesus. If you and I spent more time at the throne of this gracious God, one of the fruits of that would be confidence. Confidence. We'd be secure, we'd be understood, we'd be feeling bold and we'd be feeling graced. We would come and find, the scripture says, grace to help when we need it most. I'm going to repeat those 10 words. We find grace to help when we need it most. Why do those 10 words matter? Because most of us have constructed a little God box. And that's synonymous with the hour we spend at church on the weekends. But may I suggest that this hour that we spend at church is not the neediest hour of your life. It's not the time that you need grace the most. Yet why do we think that God is somehow going to be here more than anywhere else? I've been long, around long enough to know there's more desperate hours than the hour you'll spend at church on the weekend. It's when you're the parent of a restless infant. It's the third night running. I haven't slept. And it's 2am and you're at your wit's end, beyond exhausted, knowing how to calm this child down. What on earth can be done? That's the moment. You need grace the most. It's the youth surrounded by bullies at school fearing their welfare and already having psychological damage done at the hate that these group of 15-year-olds are spitting their way. But then the terror becomes the physical damage they're going to do as they press in. Hey, that's when you need grace the most. It's the older person laying awake at night after another diagnosis, wondering if they have strength to go through the next treatment wondering if it's even worth it at this age and stage of life. When you're laying awake at night processing that dilemma, that's when you need grace the most. They're the grace opportunities, the worst moments, the lowest moments, the darkest moments, the scariest moments. That's when we need grace the most. That's when those 10 words become the most significant. We find grace to help when we need it most. Should we experience God in the church hour? I sure hope so. I hope we do. But don't make the mistake of thinking he's only here or that he's just mostly here and you get kind of scraps outside of this time. No, no, no. His presence is available whenever you need it the most. The darkest hour, the neediest hour, the scariest times. His deepest work is done there. That's the context of Hebrews 4.16. We'll have far more crucial moments in the coming week than the hour we spend here together with God. We'll desperately need grace to come and flood into our experience. In fact, you've probably had far more crucial hours in the past week than you have in the time you've spent here. So did you let grace flood into those moments? Did you bring to mind the awareness of a loving father that God is and let him minister to you in those moments? Or were you fooled into thinking, I couldn't bring God into this. 
not the mess that I've made right now. I couldn't bring God into this now. Ah, yeah, that's the very time to rush to the throne room and find grace when you need it the most. When you're in the middle of struggle, when the issue is burning hot in your hand and it's all awkward and you don't know what to do with it, that's the very time to say, hey, Dad, I've got this thing and I feel really stuck and I need you. And his grace comes in and fills our hearts. We need to land this plane. In Matthew 11, Jesus is in the midst of a wild session of going off, fired up at the religious rites. He put all these extra fences up when it comes to relating to God. They made a relationship with God complicated and Jesus hated that. It's not complicated. And he finishes this rant expressing his frustration at all these religious guys who set up all of these extra boxes to kind of get people in tight in knots. And Jesus turns to the masses. He turns to the common people, the ordinary folks, and he expresses this beautiful and open invite. It goes like this. Come to me. Come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Read their harness or way of life. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Jesus says the burden I give you is light. I'm sorry if you've had prayer presented to you in the form of obligation where it's left you feeling weighed down and burdened and full of guilt and like I'm just a terrible prayer. Prayer is just an invitation to come. It's a relational opportunity, not a religious obligation. Would you join me right now in prayer as we move into communion? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we get to come. And Lord, so often we feel like we're not ready to come. We're not good enough. We're not pure enough. We're not organised enough. And yet, Jesus, you said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you'll find rest for your souls. So, Lord, in these moments we shared, we're just doing our best to come, to come to you, to realise your door is open. You have time for us, God. What an incredible thing. And you never say, get it all worked out and then come. You say, come as you are, and let's work it out together. So in these moments we share together, we're opening our hearts to you, Lord. We're coming. I encourage you to have your communion in hand. We're going to share the bread and the cup together.
This is a simple meal symbolising our relationship to Jesus. And just by taking this together, it's our way of saying, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you that you've created a pathway for me to get back into relationship with the Father again. And it's through his broken body and it's through his shed blood that that door that we spoke about earlier was flung open and the Father says, come, come. Almighty God, only you fulfil us. Grant us today as we receive the bread and the cup in memory of Christ's death and his suffering. In communion with you and your family, that we may partake in the body and blood of Christ, who on the night of his betray took the bread. I invite you to stand as we share in this together. When he had given thanks, Jesus broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ given for you. Preserve your soul and body to everlasting life. Take and eat, remembering that Christ died for you. Feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Let's eat together. Now the challenge is to open this cup without spilling it on yourself. All the best with that. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and said, Drink from it, all of you. This blood is the blood of the new covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to die for us. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you, preserve your soul and body to everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful in Jesus' name. Let's drink together.